Would you pray with me? And we'll dive in this morning. Oh, Father, what a wonderful season to praise you. What a wonderful time of year to pause, to remember what Christ did for us. That he wasn't just born as a baby in a manger, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a death on our behalf, that he was raised again to glory. And because of him, we get to know you and have a relationship with you. Father, what an incredible reality to sing of this morning. Lord, I ask that as we continue our time together this morning, as we seek to understand your word, to, to teach it, to listen to it, I pray that it would be clear. Lord, that your spirit would be active. Lord, that you would soften hearts and minds, that you would help us to see the truth of your word and use it to shape and mold us. For Christ's glory, for Christ's dominion, in Christ's name. Amen. Now, if you were to select a favorite Christmas passage from Scripture for me to preach here this morning on Christmas Eve, what would that Scripture be? I know there's many favorite Scriptures out there. Maybe some of them we've even read here this morning. Maybe you would go to the Old Testament. Isaiah 7. Who can argue with the words, Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel, God with us. I'm not preaching Isaiah 7 this morning. Or maybe your favorite is Isaiah 9. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That would be good, but that's not what we're preaching this morning. Or maybe you'd go to the New Testament, Luke chapter 2. The familiar Christmas story, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that the world should be registered not Luke 2. Or Matthew 1, she shall bear a son, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Potentially even John 1 that Greg has read for us this morning, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among his people. All of these would be wonderful Christmas Eve messages to deliver, and maybe you'd be right in picking them, because they would all be fantastic in preparing our hearts for Christmas. In fact, I'm going to be talking about one of those texts here tonight at 6 p.m. I'd encourage you to come back for that. But if you picked any of those, you would be wrong. I'm not preaching any of those here this morning. Instead, in preparation for Christmas tomorrow, I chose Joshua 24, verses 29 through 33. Please open your Bibles to Joshua 24, 29 through 33. And before you start throwing tomatoes, there is a relevance to Christmas, I promise. Let me read Joshua 24, verses 29 through 33, and see if you can't pick up on the relationship to Christmas. Joshua 24, verses 20, or verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. And they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnath Serah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua and had known all the works that the Lord did for Israel. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamer, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas, his son, who had given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Now, if that isn't a Christmas text, I don't know what is. 
But again, before you get up and leave, thinking I've really lost it finally once and for all this time, let me explain a little bit what I mean. For those of you that are visiting with us this morning, we have been spending the last few months looking at this book of Joshua, this Old Testament story of Joshua. And the story of Joshua is how God raises up this new leader, his name is Joshua, to take over for Moses to rescue his people and to bring them into the promised land. God leads and enables Joshua to rescue this people, to defeat their enemies, to give them a new home in the promised land. In short, Joshua is a story about a rescuer. It's a story about a hero. It's a story about a savior. It's not coincidental because Joshua's name itself means God saves. But even though the book bears his name, we've discovered again and again that Joshua isn't actually the savior of this book. And if the rest of the book hadn't made that clear, the conclusion does so very clearly by displaying what I've called the limit of human saviors. The limit of human saviors. We read through this section, and you probably picked up on the fact that this is three key eulogies. A eulogy, the story of somebody's death and burial, what they are remembered for, and first and foremost, most prominently, Joshua is listed. In Joshua's eulogy, we read that he has died. Look at verse 29. After these things, Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being 110 years old. Did pretty well, living to be 110, not quite as far as Moses, who lived to be 120. But it records Joshua's death, and then his burial, and they buried him in his own inheritance at Timnasarah, which is in the hill country of Ephraim, north of the mountain of Gaash. Joshua is buried in the very land that God used him to conquer. His legacy is the fact that his tomb is in the place that God promised to give them at the beginning of the book. He is literally interned in the promise that he had claimed at the beginning of the book. And just to drive that point home, we see Joshua's legacy described in verse 31. Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, and had known all the work that the Lord did for Israel. Now, if that isn't a fantastic legacy, a fantastic reminder of the faithfulness of Joshua, I don't know what is. As long as Joshua was alive, the people as a nation, as a whole, faithfully served God. They were committed to the worship of God. They were committed to serving God. They were committed to being faithful to what God had called them to. Joshua's eulogy testifies to his faithfulness in the conquest, how he did exactly what God called him to do by conquering the land, by bringing the Israelites into it. But the end of the book also highlights another of Israel's rescuer heroes. And in verse 32, we see Joseph's eulogy. Now, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Joseph, let me give you a bit of a refresher. <laughs> because not all of the movies are accurate on this account. You can read about Joshua or Joseph's life in Genesis 39 through 50. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob. And because he was, had the right mom, he was Jacob's favored son. He was given all of these incredible privileges, and his brothers got angry. So ten of his brothers got so angry that they sold him into slavery and sent him down to Egypt. Joseph was faithful, and he ended up in a prominent position before being falsely accused and thrown into prison. Then, at the right time, God raised him up out of prison by giving him the ability to interpret Pharaoh's dream, and he was the individual that God used to miraculously save Israel. As there was a famine in the land, and all of Jacob's sons and all of his brothers were able to come down to Egypt to be rescued from starving to death. And then in Joshua's final request at the end of his life in Genesis 50, 
He has one request. He says, after I have died, what I want you to do is I want you to take my bones and go bury them in the promised land. So sure was Joseph that God had rescued his people once and he would do it again that he said, take my bones and go put them when God fulfills his promise in the promised land. And we read in verse 32 that this takes place. As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the place of land Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. Joshua, or Joseph was so sure that God would be faithful to his people that he waited to be buried until they had taken him up there and Moses took his bones 400 years later up and he was buried in the promised land. Joseph's eulogy testifies to his trust in God's promises. So if, Jake, or if uh, Joshua's eulogy is a testimony to the faithfulness of the conquest, then Joseph's eulogy testifies to his trust in God's promises. And then we get a surprising final individual. Look at verse 33. And Eleazar, the son of Aaron, died. And they buried him at Gibeah, the town of Phinehas' his son, which had been given him in the hill country of Ephraim. Eleazar is one of those strange figures you may not be familiar with. His role was to take over for Aaron as the chief priest of the people of Israel. And he led as the chief priest of Israel, and he oversaw the land allocation. He was involved in the sacrificial system that was established here in the promised land. He was faithful again and again and again to that role. Eleazar's eulogy testifies to his mediation of God's covenant. So we have Joshua, we have Joseph, and we have Eleazar, these three monumental characters on the landscape of Israel's history. And three things are very clear from this section. Number one, these men faithfully acted to save and preserve Israel. Each and every one of them was faithful to exactly what God called them to do. And as a result, they're buried in the promised land that God had given them. All of these men are praised for their faithful obedience, for doing precisely what God had tasked them with and preserving Israel through their role. And yet, all of these men ultimately end up in the ground. All of these saviors, all of these rescuers, all of these heroes of Israel's history are recorded as having died and been buried. What a strange way to finish the book of Joshua. But I think what's incredibly critical of the story of Joshua is that these stories reveal the limits of human salvation. These stories reveal that though the greatest people that had ever lived in many ways for Israel's history, they were honored and they were respected and yet... Every single one of them died. While faithful leaders are essential and should be honored, they all die and are forgotten just moments after they've lived. In fact, the Bible actually makes this exact point clear in the case of Joshua in Hebrews 4.8. We read, for if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. The writer of Hebrews looks back on Israel's history and he says, Joshua gave them a sense of rest, but he didn't give them their ultimate rest. He didn't give them their ultimate salvation. Those things were achieved even in a leader like Joshua. Here's the thing that's important for us to remember, even on Christmas Eve. We will never find salvation in any human individual or institution. No matter how great, no matter how monumental, no matter how good that individual is, that individual will never bring us ultimate salvation and fulfillment. And we've been talking about that over the course of the entire book of Joshua. We've been reminding ourselves of the idols that tend to crop up in our own lives. Asking us to consider who in 
my life am I looking to for belonging? Who am I looking to for validation? Who am I looking to for justification, for rescue, for salvation? Where does my heart tend to lean to look to people rather than look to God for my ultimate purpose? <coughs> Maybe it's someone at work. Maybe it's a boss who you just want to please and just want to see them say, good job. Maybe it's a coworker, Or maybe it's a client who if you could just get them, your life would be happy, things would go well. More likely, it's a family member. Maybe you're an individual who has sought your entire life to please a parent who never seemed to be completely happy with your endeavors, with your life. Could be your children as you seek to have them be the center of your universe. Could be a husband or wife, a significant other that you are seeking to find fulfillment in ultimately. Could be an ex-spouse that you're seeking to prove yourself to. The list could go on and on and on. We frequently look for salvation, for belonging, for justification in the people that God places in our lives. Or maybe most familiar to you, you may be looking for salvation in yourself. This is the line that our world preaches. This is the lie that our world preaches. That if you want to be happy, what you need to do is self-actualize. What you need to do is just realize who you are. Look inside and you'll find fulfillment and purpose. It's the purpose of every Disney movie that you watch. If you could just be happy, if you could just be successful, if you could just be smart, then you would find validation, then you would find security in this life. But here's the painful bait and switch. Just like the story of Joshua, ultimately, all those people, including yourself, will let you down. Every single one of those people that we look to to find fulfillment and purpose in will fail us. Our coworkers and friends will let us down. They won't come through in our time of need. Our family will betray us and they will do things that we don't think they should. We even fail ourselves. Many of you are probably going to set up New Year's resolutions here in a week or so. By February or March, how many of them will still be in place? We promise this time it will be different. This time I will do what I've said I need to do. And we even let ourselves down. Ultimately, everyone, every hero, every savior, every person we look to will let us down. So clearly Joshua isn't the real savior of this book. As prominent as he is in Joshua... His name, I think, comes up like 180 times in the book. Ultimately, the book isn't actually about him. But as some of you already know, that's very consistent with the point the whole book is making. In fact, the book of Joshua is actually about the legacy of God's salvation. The book of Joshua is about the legacy of God's salvation. Do you remember our synopsis for the book? Our purpose statement for the book of Joshua? Joshua is the story of how God fulfills his plans for his people by his, or in his power, by his timing. Excuse me. By his power, in his timing. It's right up there. I should be able to read it. But isn't that what we've seen again and again and again throughout the book of Joshua? In the crossing, in chapters 1 through 5, we saw how God made promises to the people. He said, I will be with you. I won't leave you. How we gave them his word to keep them on the straight and narrow. How we went before them to conquer their enemies. And he actively reminded them of his faithfulness to them how he provided a means for their victory. In that first section, we learn that God prepares his people. That God prepares them for whatever he's calling them to. 
Then in the taking of the land in chapter 6 through 12, we saw that God gave them victory. He conquered their enemies. He intervened supernaturally again and again and again. He addressed sin in their camp. He provided mercy to them. He exercised sovereignty. And ultimately, he judged evil both in the Canaanites and in the Israelites. In the taking of the land, we learn that God protects his people. God prepares his people. God protects his people. And then in 13 through 21, the dividing the allotment of the land, we saw God provide them a home, give them a place to live, be faithful to the promises he'd made at the beginning of the book. He gave them a perfect start, and he just called them to worship and obey him, to pursue justice and mercy. We learned that God provides for his people. And then in this last section in chapters 22 through 24, the section that focused on the service and worship of God, we saw that God sustained the unity in the people of Israel. How he provided reminders again and again to them. How he pledged to be faithful for, to them going forward and how he commanded obedience and worship yet again. But the book ended up on a bit of a thud. As God prescribed holiness for his people but predict that they will ultimately failure or fail. He said, this is what I am calling you to and this is the very task that you will fail at. So he must provide a means of salvation. The book of Joshua asks questions, leaves room for a salvation that God will only provide. The point of Joshua is that God fulfills his plans for his people by his power in his timing. The story of Joshua, in short, is that God's plan is to save his people by his power at the perfect time. That was his plan for Israel thousands of years ago to step into history and to save his people by his plan in his perfect timing. And it's still his plan today. It's still how God operates today. You know, it's funny, a few weeks ago, as I was preparing to try and wrap up the book of Joshua, and I was talking about the themes of Joshua, I sometimes have these conversations with my kids. And we're driving out to Eagle, and we're driving in the car, and I've got Josiah and Brianna in the back seat. And they're asking, what are you doing this week, Dad? And I said, well, I'm preparing to preach on, it wasn't this week, but it was a few weeks ago. They said, well, what's, what's the whole point of Joshua? And I said, well, you know, how God fulfills his plans for his people by his power and his timing. And there was a pause. And I could listen. You know, you can... You can you can hear a five-year-old think, can't you? You know what I'm talking about. There's a pause as my five-year-old daughter in the back seat goes, God fulfills his plans for his people by his power and his timing. Dad, isn't that exactly how God fulfilled his promises when he sent Jesus? I said, you're five. <laughs> so that's exactly right, Bree. That's exactly right. And that brings us to how all of this in the book of Joshua relates to Christmas. How the book of Joshua connects the story of the whole Bible to the story of Christmas that we celebrate here this time of year. Here in that connection, we find the love of our Savior. The Bible again and again explains how our situation is just like Israel's was down in Egypt. How we were lost, how we were destitute, how we needed someone to rescue and save us. 
The story of the Bible starts out with humanity and a perfect creation in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. How God establishes them in this perfect place in fellowship with one another, in relationship with him, and how they are thriving, and how they are exactly where he means for them to be. But Adam and Eve, just like the rest of us would have done, chose they wanted to be their own savior. God's plan for their life wasn't good enough. His purpose for their life wasn't good enough, and they needed to take charge and own their futures, put themselves in charge over God, and the result of the fall happened. Sin and death entered the world, and Humanity foolishly rebelled against God. And that heart, that rebellious nature is present in every single one of us. As we seek to do our own thing, as we seek to walk our own way, and we read through the book of Joshua and we go, how could the people rebel again? Except that's exactly what we do. Our situation is that we are separated from God, desperately in need of a Savior, and so we run around looking for saviors and redeemers and rescuers and everything else hoping to find fulfillment and satisfaction. But praise God, he didn't leave us that way. And that right there is the story of Christmas. The story of Christmas is the story of God's intervention into human history. That's why Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7, tells us that God's plan was to send his own Savior. We read that familiar text, For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. It's a declaration that God, before the foundations of the world, had a plan to rescue his people. And Luke 1, verse 35, boldly declares that that Savior's arrival will be entirely by the power of God. Luke 1, 35 says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, the angel speaking to Mary, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child who will be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. The problem of our salvation, that God had a plan to rescue and redeem, required that God step into history by his power to do what we couldn't do for ourselves. Galatians picks up on that theme in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, and reassures us that all of this took place precisely at the perfect time. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We who were created to be sons and daughters of the king, who rebelled and walked away and did our own thing, God says, I, through my Savior, will call you back into my family. And that's why the angel's announcement to Joseph is so staggering in Matthew 1, verse 21. Because it reminds us that we become God's people through this perfect Savior. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Because that's precisely what the word Jesus means. Jesus in the Greek means God saves. And it's actually the exact same term that in the Old Testament is translated Joshua. Joshua in the Old Testament means God saves. Jesus in the New Testament means God saves. 
God's plan is to save his people by his power. And that, came, or that plan came to fruition at the perfect time in Jesus Christ. That's precisely why generations of believers have loved John 3.16 so much. Because it demonstrates all of these realities of God's plan in one crystallized package. You probably know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. That's what Christmas is all about. That's what we celebrate as we gather here this morning, even as we study the book of Joshua. Because the story of Christmas is a story of how God stepped into history, how God planned before the foundations of the world to send a Savior to redeem his people by his power in his perfect timing. But to experience God's salvation today, we must receive that Savior. We must recognize the purpose of all of Scripture. We must recognize the love of our Savior, how Christ came to this world to redeem a fallen and broken and rebellious people who wanted nothing to do with him. Through his virgin birth and being placed in that manger, through his perfect sinless life on our behalf, through his death bearing in himself the wrath of God for our sins, and through his resurrection three days later, he did just that. The plan came to fruition by the power of God to redeem a people in God's perfect timing. Which is why we celebrate Christmas. Because if Jesus hadn't done any of that, he would just be another hero of Israel's history that's laying in a tomb somewhere, just like Joseph, just like Joshua, just like Eleazar. So if you're sitting here this morning, and you find yourself being at best lukewarm, kind of indifferent to the season of Christmas, indifferent to spiritual things, let me warn you that this is God's plan for all of humanity. That salvation is found only in the person work in Jesus Christ. And if you're coasting along thinking that life is easy and that things are going well and you don't have to worry about these spiritual matters because tomorrow morning you're going to unwrap a new car in your driveway. Let me warn you that in an instant all of that's going to go away. The real reason of Christmas is the real reason of Joshua. If you're sitting here this morning and you've never really considered spiritual things, you've never really pondered in your heart what Christmas is really all about, you buy into the Hallmark movies that say Christmas is about a nice feeling, it's about loving one another, it's about enjoying the season and the time with family, let me call you to the real reason for Christmas. Christ wasn't just born to lay in a manger so that we could have nativities out in front of our houses, but that he came to die for you and for me. He is the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to God apart from Christ. And I would challenge you today to receive that Savior, because to experience God's salvation today, we must embrace his Savior. This is precisely why we got so excited when we said we think we have a baptism to do on Christmas Eve. At first blush, it doesn't appear to be the theme of Christmas trees and candlelights, fireplaces. 
But this is what Christmas is actually all about. As Mackenzie comes up here and declares that God has opened her eyes to the truth of the gospel and she's embraced that Savior that God planned to send before the foundations of the world. And that's why in so many ways both Christmas and Joshua have these incredible truths in common. Christmas and Joshua call us to recognize the limits of human saviors. That we can't find salvation and justification and redemption in anyone other than God. They call us to remember the legacy of God's salvation, how God has a history of saving his people, and he lays out that history so that we will know he'll do it again. And ultimately, Christmas and Joshua both call us to receive the love of the Savior. To humble our hearts, to trust entirely in Jesus Christ for our salvation, not relying on ourselves or on anyone else to restore our relationship with God, but to repent and believe and trust in him. It is our honest prayer this morning that no one here today would leave without having made that commitment. Because to experience God's salvation today, we must receive his Savior. Amen? Let's pray. Father, what a ride it's been through the book of Joshua. Ups and downs, challenges, uplifting texts and convicting texts. And yet through it all, the story that Joshua weaves is a story of how we need you to save us. How we can't do it in our own strength, and our own power. But you, you, for the sake of your name, for the sake of your glory, sent Christ into the world to save a people who was walking and running away from him. Lord, what an incredible reality this time of year we celebrate. Recognition of what Christ has done for us. The fact that the greatest gift that's ever been given was Christ himself. Lord, we're thankful for that. We praise you for that. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know you yet, I do ask that you would soften their hearts, that you would help them to see the truth of your word, that you would help them to embrace Christ as their redeemer and savior, to stop looking for fulfillment and validation in everything else in the world, and to turn to the only place where it can really be found. In Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen.